Well, hey, if you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 is where we're going to start this morning. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for the great uh, welcome, Ben. And uh, thank you guys for those of you who applauded. And for the rest of you who probably don't know me, I am our Carmel Campus pastor. It's been uh, about four months since I've been here, so uh, you're excused if you don't know who I am. But uh, we celebrate, I wanted to say something before we get started this morning as you're on Luke chapter 15. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one that looks like this somewhere around you. Pick that up. It's on page 730 in that Bible. Uh, and you can follow along with us. Uh, this week, August 19th, actually, so about three or four days ago, we celebrated uh, three years of our Carmel campus. And so, yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to believe it's been so fast, but three years of being one church in two locations. And so I just wanted to take a moment and thank you guys, because many of you were here when we launched the Carmel Campus. Many of you have served there. Some of you that I see here today, it's like, didn't you used to? And then, you know, they came over for a year or two and helped us get started. And then they came back home to Noblesville. And then, of course, many of you uh, still give. And so when, whenever we give an offering, I'm always so thankful for those of you who give. And especially if you give online, thank you for that. Because I know sometimes that bag goes by and you feel a little awkward because you don't have anything to put in there. Uh, and you're like, and people are looking at you, they're giving you the stink eye. And you're like, no, no, I, I give online. I gave on the app just today. And so thank you guys for that. But it's been a great journey. People are finding their way back to God at Carmel. Uh, we've got people signed up to be baptized next week. And so uh, it's been a real joy of my life to be able to serve over there. And so thank you guys uh, for the part you play in that. Hey, we're continuing our series today called Finding Your Way Back to God. We have been spending, uh, we're spending five weeks on this story in Luke 15, uh, the story of the prodigal son. Jesus told it in one minute. We were spending five weeks on it, okay? But we really think there's some important things uh, that we're gonna learn from this story. And every week, we've had a different person come up and uh, share their Finding Their Way Back to God story and read the scripture. And so I'm gonna start right there this week with my good friend, Daniel Kopik. Will you help me welcome Daniel to the stage? Hey, brother. Hi, brother. How are you, man? <laughs> Daniel, why don't you tell us you're finding your way back to God's story? Well, thank you for the uh, applaud and hello. And uh, if you don't mind doing this, can I, can I try this? Uh, good morning, Genesis. Good morning. Nice. That was nice. Good work. Um, might have a future in for, this. <laughs> really? For all of you who uh, know me and know my wife, Courtney, uh, you absolutely know and and can recognize that God exists because, well, Courtney married me, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, finding my way back to God has been a, a long path, a long journey, uh, one that he has been absolutely present in. And I can say that because if you really wanted to hear the story, I could go on for hours about uh, what God has done. Uh, I was born and raised um, in a Catholic family. And uh, learning as a kid at Sunday school, all the great stories of Noah, of uh, Abraham, of uh, Jonah, uh, on and on and on. And the bad part was that I didn't really learn about faith. And uh, so that certainly didn't keep me um, kind of in check for my, my life and my teenage life especially. Because that's where the train fell off the tracks. And uh, when I tell you that it fell off, I mean it fell off. And... So, not to make this too long, uh, God has pulled me away from addiction. God has pulled me away from a life of uh, egotistical selfishness, mm -hmm. and God has done this over and over again, uh, especially with Genesis Church. Genesis Church uh, came into Courtney and I's life uh, after we had been married, and uh, I'm thankful to my father-in-law 
and, uh, and Danielle for inviting us to Genesis Church because from there, God started bringing me back to him. And he has brought me back through um, serving on ministry teams, cafe and uh, gin kids and host team. He has brought me back to him through uh, facilities team. He's brought me back to him through connection groups. He's brought me back to him. If you don't know, Daniel so almost single-handedly ways. built this stage that I'm standing on right now, and uh, you could park a truck on it, literally, because that was the idea. So, yeah. He's done all this to, to bring me back to him, and that's why I can glorify and say to him, thank you every day, because it's got nothing to do with me. It's got everything to do with what he's done for my life, and God will do that with you as well. Um, it is a, a pure heart that I can go to him every morning and say, Lord, will you lead my life today? Will you please do this for me? And he, he has never failed me. And I mean never failed me. I have so many days that I can look back in my old life and I can talk about regret. Every day that I have given my life to him, there is no regret. He is the love of my life besides Courtney. And I'm so thankful for that. And if you see this guy's life now, he is an incredible man of faith. <laughs> and Daniel's one of our elders here at Genesis Church, which means he's a spiritual leader in the church. And so just to see how far he's come has been really crazy, isn't it? it just is incredible. <laughs> but what an, what an incredible guy, an incredible friend. And I know he takes no credit. And what an incredible family. So Thank thanks for coming up and sharing. I want to throw this at Steve, too. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> Steve was there. I was baptized with my wife uh, at Genesis Church. So if I can encourage anyone in this room, if you are ready, if you want to tell Christ, I want you, you are the Lord of my life, do it in baptism. Mm-hmm. It's the greatest, amazing day you will have. And Great. I'm Thanks thank- for that I'm commercial. Thankful that- Appreciate yes, that. Absolutely. Yeah. So a plug, I know. Switch gears. Switch gears. You're going to read our story for us today from Luke chapter 15, verse yes. 11 through 24. Jesus tells a parable of the lost son. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. All right. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Daniel Kopik, everybody. This has been called one of the greatest short stories ever told. And uh, the reason that we're spending five weeks on this 
is because there are five awakenings that happen in this story. This younger son, on his journey to find meaning and purpose for his life, undergoes five awakenings. The first one, which we talked about week one, let's just say this. The son undergoes these five awakenings. The reason we want to share them with you is because we believe that each of us goes through these same five awakenings as we are finding our way back to God. They're the same things that happen to us. And so the first one, this, which we talked about week one, is awakening to longing. And we said we all have these longings. They're universal for longing for love and longing for, to find purpose in our life and to find meaning, you know, to make sense out of life. We all have that. And we said these longings are good, that they're, they're given to us by God. But the problem comes when we try to fulfill these longings apart from him. And so that leads to the second awakening. When we go out on our own, we strike out on our own, just like the lost son, we go out to try to fulfill these longings that we have apart from God. That leads us to the second awakening, which is awakening to regret. And this is where we realize that our attempts to satisfy these longings have fallen short. And they're actually driving us further and further away from the God who created us and who loves us and who has a plan for our lives. We realize that our actions separate us from him and we start to have regret. And this can start us on that sorry cycle we've talked about for a couple of weeks now of longing and regret, longing and regret. You know, we, we have this longing and then we try to fill it. We sin, we, we uh, separate ourselves from God and then we feel bad about that. And so we, but we don't really change anything. And so we keep on this cycle and we, it's like a merry-go-round of longing and regret. And, but if that regret eventually turns into gar- godly sorrow, which we talked about last week, that leads us to repentance. Repentance is a turning around. We see that in this story when the younger son comes to his senses and he decides to turn around. And when we come to our senses, we realize that with God, it's possible to get a new start, that we can start back at ground zero. We can get a do-over with him. And that leads us to the third awakening, awakening to help. This happens when we admit that we're really powerless to help ourselves, to, to do this on our own. And so we turn to our father for help. It's here that we said last week, we discover that help has a name and his name is Jesus. We talked about the kind of father that we come home to. He's a father that we see in this story that's longing and waiting and looking for us, that he's scanning the horizon, waiting for his lost child to come home. And when he sees us, he runs to us, which leads us to where we are today. We've experienced these three, three awakenings and they've led us back home to our father. We've come home. But, but even though we're home, our journey hasn't ended yet because these awakenings, we've said, aren't something that just happened to us one time. It's something that we experience over and over again. We don't just find our way back to God and then we're fixed all of a sudden. You've probably experienced that. And so instead, we discover that while finding our way back to God is a life-changing moment, it's really also a life-growing process that there's a process uh, that happens when we find our way back to God. It's really, really difficult to understand for some of us who, especially if we've undergone a powerful conversion where we have found our way back to God in a really powerful way and we've seen some things happen in our lives right away and God has really moved in our lives and we sometimes expect that when we get home, everything's gonna be fixed and everything's gonna be fine and that doesn't always happen. And so what happens instead is that we bring back the remnants of our life away from home. Right? So we've gone away to this distant country, and then we come back home. But even after we're home, it's sometimes easy to forget who we are. We, we sometimes lose our identity. So when our lives don't change immediately, remember that time in the distant country that we spent, slopping pigs, right? And we think, well, you know what? I'm just a pig slopper. Like, that's how God made me. It's just pointless to try to do anything else because that's who I am. But that's a lie, 
What God's trying to do to us when he brings us back home is to show us, remind us of our true identity. You know, in our culture today, identity theft is the fastest growing crime in America. There's so many ways for people to get their hands on our identity. Uh, statistics show us that somewhere around 15 million Americans were affected by identity theft last year. That's about 7%, 6 or 7% of our entire population. Uh, just two weeks ago, I was at a, at a little party and I got a phone call from my credit card company saying, hey, did you try to use your credit card to spend 200 and some dollars at Kroger? I'm like, no, who spends $200 at Kroger? You know, but no, that wasn't me. They said, okay, we'll put a hold on the card. And my wife and I spent you know, about three days trying to get this issue cleaned up. But it seems like not a week goes by that you don't hear, don't you, about some security breach or some data breach or some, some uh, new identity theft story. And having a whole high profile doesn't really protect you. I read a story this week of Abraham Abdallah, who several years ago attempted to steal the identities of over 200 celebrities, including people like Oprah Winfrey and Steven Spielberg. He used library computers and Abdallah was able to find a bunch of the uh, pretty commonly available information about celebrities, but it's information you can find online about them that are sometimes the things the credit card companies use for security, like their mother's maiden name or the name of the street they grew up on. And so Abdallah would do all this searching, find this stuff, and then he'd call the credit card company uh, posing as their manager and then he would get far enough that he would find more information and he would add that to his file. And so the next time, he, so he tried to get credit cards in the names of uh, almost 200 celebrities. He was eventually captured and arrested and authorities found in his apartment uh, account information and even social security numbers for many of the 400 wealthiest Americans. But I read this week of a new form of identity theft and it's one that's even more insidious because it's very hard to detect. You don't always know what's going on. Apparently, some pretty savvy thieves have found out a way to take one piece of your identity, say a social security number or some other kind of ID number, and tie it to a different name and address so that they can get credit cards and other loans in that new name and new address, and so it doesn't show up on your credit report right away. And so you don't even know what's going on. It's like, it's, it's so insidious because you've got this identity that's made up of some truth and a whole bunch of lies, and isn't that what kind of happens to us sometimes as we find our way back to God? That we have this identity that is compromised because it's made up of half-truths. This happens so many times. We find our way back to God. We give ourselves this identity, right, that's partially true. We start to believe the lies about our identity, that lies that come from our own insecurity or lies that come from what the world has to say about us or lies that come directly from the mouth of our enemy. And we see this in the story of the lost son. Now, first of all, remember what just happened, okay? But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now watch this, verse 21. But the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I wanna make sure you catch this, okay? Because right here, there's something that's so important to our walk that we sometimes miss in this story. Part of what the son said is true. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. True. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Eh, false, right? There's this identity he's got that's made up of partial truth and partial falsehoods. It's a mistaken identity. And even after seeing his father run to him with mercy and compassion, you know, even after seeing his father wrap his arms around him and kiss him and cry on him, even after all these unmistakable signs of the father's love and grace 
the son's opinion of himself, is a lie. It hasn't caught up to the reality. And this is something that you've probably seen that so many times as our lives change that perception lags reality. Don't you see this? We see this with other people, right? That when people have, all of us know or know of someone, right? Who's had a big conversion that they've found their way back to God and things have changed in their lives. And they, you know, the people that used to be the most hateful people, right? And they've found their way back to God and, and they would tell you their story, their incredible conversion, but you still remember what they were like before that? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, just nod your head. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? So, so you think, well, that's still the same snot-nosed kid I grew up with, Right? Or that's still the same controlling husband that she used to have. Or that I remember that guy used to get drunk every weekend and now he's found Jesus. I don't know about that. Our perception sometimes lags the reality of what happens in people's lives, right? Well, that can happen in us too. I mean, maybe you found your way back to God and you're trying to change your life, but, but you still have this memory, all right? This vestige of that time you spent in the distant country when you were slopping pigs, so, and, and, and you've taken these, you remember these longings and instead of drawing you closer to your heavenly father, you're still far from home in your mind. You're far from home. You're left only with pain and regret because in your mind, you're still there. I'm still in that distant country. You're filled with doubt that God will ever accept you back this time. Because time after time, I mean, you've come back to him, you've run back to him and you've seen him with open arms every time bring you back. But you think, you know what? This time it's gotta be different. This time he's not gonna be as welcome. He's not gonna be as accepting. You, you really don't think he'll embrace you. This is what the young son feels when he returns home. He's coming back to his father, but the, the shadow of shame is following him. And it often follows us too. I mean, shame will cast a shadow over your joyous homecoming. Shame wants us to forget where we belong. Shame tells us, you, you don't deserve this. You're not worthy. That's what the younger son said, right? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Shame will tell us that we really haven't changed. And shame can give us a false identity and keep us from embracing who God says we really are. And that's why we need this fourth awakening. You know, even after we come home, this fourth awakening is vital. So what's the fourth awakening? It's awakening to love, awakening to love. While we see the father's love and the way he waits for his son and the way he runs to his son, we don't really see the full extent of his love until we see how he responds to his son, how he welcomes him home. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now watch how the father responds. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Now the son, remember, had this whole thing prepared. Like he'd been working on this speech all the way home, right? And he didn't even get to finish his speech. It's like if Micah came out right now and started playing music behind me, I'm like, uh, okay, I guess I'm done. I'll see you guys, you know? I've prepared, I've, I've worked hard on this. I wanna be able to tell you what God's laid on my heart or what I think he's laid on my heart. And this son has been working on this speech. He says, he says I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna, this is what he says earlier in the story. I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your servants. Make me like one of your hired hands. Just let me work for you. I don't need to be your son anymore, but just give me a place in your house. Just let me eat some of your food. Just let me serve you in some way. The son has prepared all of this and the father cuts him off and says, forget about it. Go get my robe, go get my sandals. Go get my ring. My son has come home. He's interrupted by his father. Doesn't even let him finish his false identity. And I think, to understand 
the depths of the Father's love, we really have to understand these symbols that he gives to his son. What do these symbols mean? What does it mean that he gets a robe and a ring and sandals? Because they represent something for us too as we find our way back to God. And so the first thing we see is the robe. He gives him the robe and the robe equals rest. I mean, think about this. You, in a modern context, where do you wear a robe? You don't wear it to work, right? You, you don't wear it to mow the grass. You don't wear it to go shopping unless you shop at Walmart and then probably you do, but right? <laughs> Where do you wear your robe? You wear it around the house, right? You wear it when you get out of bed. You wear it when you get out of the shower. You wear it when you're comfortable, when you're in your home, right? You wear it when you're having rest. And for this son to have the father offer him a robe meant that he could go and find rest. The son was worn out from traveling. He's been away from home for so long. He's tired of trying to make things work out on his own. And his father comes and offers him a robe and not just a robe, but he says, bring me the best robe. Now, whose robe in this house would have been the best robe? Well, the father's robe. He's offering him his robe and he can find rest in the father's robe. And we can find that when we come back to God too. It's like Jesus said a little bit before this story happens. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's what the father wants for us. He wants us to find rest in him. But he doesn't just give him a robe. He puts a ring on his finger. What's the ring? Well, the ring represents authority. It's the authority of the father. Throughout history, men of power have used their ring and the symbols on their ring to sign official documents, to make clear their wishes. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see time after time again, kings sealing an order with their signet ring. In those days, when you met a ruler, you met a king, you met a wealthy man, you would kiss his ring because it represented the, the authority, the power that they had. By giving the son his ring, the father was saying, hey, what's mine is yours, all right? You wield power in this house. You have authority in this house. You know, in the same way, when we come back to God, we are made ambassadors. Scripture tells us that you and I have power in the kingdom. So often we can be lulled into thinking that there is nothing special about us, that, that, that we can't offer anything to non-believers because we're just so messed up ourselves, but that is a lie from the pit of hell. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You, he's talking to his followers. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do you, put, neither do you put a lamp, uh, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds, not for your glory, but what? And glorify the Father in heaven. Jesus says, when you come into my kingdom, you have authority. You have influence, you have power. It's the same way when the son finds his way back home. Finally, the sandals. And the sandals indicate acceptance. Acceptance, you know, he becomes part of the family when he gets sandals. In an ancient Jewish home, no one could wear shoes in the house except the homeowners. The servants couldn't, you know, the hired help couldn't, but the, the father, the sons, the, the family, they could wear sandals in the house. By giving him the sandals, the father was saying, welcome home. You're not a slave. You're not a servant. Remember, the son didn't get to finish a speech. He was gonna say, make me a servant. The father didn't even let him finish that. He says, no, you're not a servant. You're my son. Are you crazy? You're my child. You know, I created you. I made you. I love you. Welcome home. He says, we're family. He's given him a place in a family. He's restoring him 
to the place in the family. You know, at the end of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was, was asked how he would treat the rebellious Southerners once they were defeated and brought back into the Union. And I think when the uh, person asked him this question, they were expecting a, a vengeful answer. But again, Abraham Lincoln answered like this. He said, I will treat them as though they never left. And one of the things that made Reconstruction and the, the reunion of the United States so uh, powerful was that was the attitude that was brought into that, that I'm gonna treat them like they never left. And knowing a little bit about Lincoln's spiritual upbringing, I'm guessing that this story probably had some influence on how he felt about that. You know, when I look at my life, I realize that in many ways I'm a prodigal. So many times in my life, I've lived in the shadow of shame. I've carried around a false identity. Even today, I carry around some regrets, some from years ago, some from this week. Many times, I still don't feel worthy of God's love. And if you're human, you probably have that same feeling sometimes. Author Brendan Manning says it this way. He says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the truth self. Every other identity is illusion. God's love for you and his choice of you constitute your worth. Accept that and let it become the most important thing in your life. You know, we've had the privilege throughout this series of sharing stories, both from people like Daniel who came on stage and shared, but also through video. And I'm excited to share one story with you today of a family who for years went through the motions of going to church but their lives didn't change until they awakened to this love the Father had for them. Check this out. Well, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I recall memorizing a bunch of things, the, the creeds, and uh, already knew the Lord's Prayer, but just a bunch of memorization. Um, never really identified a relationship. I knew that we went to church every Sunday and, and, and I felt good after going, but um, just maybe I think because it's what was the right thing to do. I think we had the mindset, things are going well, we've got it on our own, we don't, we're doing our time on Sunday and then we're heading out. There was a longing for something more. I was doing things that I thought were right but actually talking to him and relating and sharing everything with him and making it personal and making it my own, I didn't quite get it at that point. I've always grown up being a Christian, but up until last year, I didn't take it as like a personal commitment. I didn't think of it as a relationship. I would call myself a Christian because I went to church every Sunday and that was about it. I didn't feel like I almost was selfish and I didn't feel like I had to do anything and, or put any effort towards anything. Then we started going to Genesis and everybody was just filled with this joy and I never understood what it meant when people would say they, someone was glowing or you could see God. And that day I saw God. It was, I walked in and people were worshiping. They had just pure joy on their faces and I wanted it because I didn't have that. And I really wanted to know what I could do to have that joy and have that happiness. I had, in the meantime, start. I had joined the Genesis Women's uh, group that meets on Wednesday mornings. And I think that's um, where my relationship really started to form with the Lord. It probably wasn't 
a month, six weeks into that group to see the transparency of these women. And they're cool. They're cool girls. They're everyday girls. But in such a short period of time to be able to connect on such a genuine level, share things that I haven't shared with my friends that I've had for a lifetime with, and to see them be so humble and willing to share with me, it was just something I had never, ever experienced or seen. The people we met here opened us, opened their arms, non-judgmental, just felt like love. We felt that we could be open at Genesis and not uh, just uh, go to uh, Genesis and worship Him and not really mean it, just go there. So that's when we found, and I found Jesus at Genesis. And so I was, I was at a, a worship night with Clyde and I was just kind of broken and they passed out prayer journals and this was new to me to write down your prayers. And I really enjoy writing so I thought it was cool. And so I started to write down just all my struggles I was feeling and I almost, it was almost like I was challenging God I remember because I wrote down, I was just lost and I was like, show me your love, show me your real, show me why I should believe in you. And that next week was the best week of my entire life and it, things that I would have just thought were regular things, I saw God and it ended up being an amazing week. I challenged God and I mean, he proved, he said, I do love you and I do want you and it just, it meant a lot to know that just a middle schooler like me and just a small person and God wanted me and wanted to prove himself to me and I finally, I felt like I had finally had that pure joy and happiness that I saw in the people when I first came to Genesis. It's kind of amazing that we don't haven't done anything to um, get the reward of going to heaven and actually went the other way of doing that and sinned and um, did the opposite of trying to get to heaven. Since Jesus came down and um, paid the price for us to get to heaven, I think, I mean, I don't know anyone who would do that and I think that's amazing and uh, really worth telling people about. We're all broken and we're going to continue to have struggles and storms. However, He loves us. He loves us in all our mess and all our brokenness. Jesus was our greatest example possible, perfect. And I'll never be Him, but I can surrender and every day, every day commit that today I am going to honor Him in everything I do. And it's, it's been rewarding, fulfilling, and it hasn't brought about fabulous riches. It hasn't brought about perfect relationships. But it's brought about a really strong relationship in the most important one I can think of, the most important one in my life. is that when we walk out of here today, we can walk confidently in the truth of our new identity, that we are dearly beloved children of God. Remember the robe? You don't have to work hard to prove yourself anymore. Come back to God and find rest. Remember the ring? Come to God and, 
You find authority and influence. Remember the sandals. You don't have to feel alone anymore. You don't have to fear rejection. You are unconditionally loved. You're part of the family. You can know without a doubt that you have a heavenly father who loves you and not as you think you should be, but just as you are. You you can stop saying, I'm not worthy and start saying, God loves me deeply. So what happens next? Well, in our story, the father throws a party. I love that we have a heavenly father who loves to party. You know, if you ever think that you don't wanna go to heaven because you're afraid it's gonna be boring, just remember your heavenly father is a party animal. That's what happens when we come home. You know, Luke 15, 23, but the, bring the cat, fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Maybe the best response when we awaken to the reality that we are loved is to celebrate. And so that's exactly what we're gonna do next week. I love that a part of Matt and Charity's family story is their baptism. You'll hear more about that part next week. But if you're finding your way back to God, it's an important step in that journey is to go public with your decision that you've made privately, to publicly affirm your new identity in Christ through baptism. You know, baptism is a way of getting rid of the part of us that carries around those regrets. It's a way to drown that shadow of shame. It represents dying to our old self, the the self that tried to live apart from God, the, the self that tried to fulfill those longings on our own, the self that keeps getting stuck in that sorry cycle. As you're lowered under the water, that old self is washed away. You become dead to sin. And as you're raised up out of the water, you you come alive as a new creation. I can't tell you how many people have said, you know what? When I came out of that water, I felt something. Like there was something tangible. There was something that was so different when I came out of the water. I can't explain it, but I know that something about me was different. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, my encouragement to you is just don't wait any longer. You know, Ben already told you how to sign up for it. Daniel already encouraged you to do it. Sign up and do it next week. We've tried to make it as easy as possible for you. You know, maybe you've just recently made that decision to make Jesus the center of your life. Don't wait. You know, sometimes I, I hear people say, well, I, I don't have it all together yet. Well, if you, let me tell you, as a pastor, if you wait until you have it all together, you will never get baptized. It's not about having it all together. You can't get it all together, but God can. And he wants to do that in you. If you've never taken that step to publicly commit to him, we would love to throw you a party next week. So throughout this series, we've been challenging you to do a couple of things. Number one is this, we've given you a prayer every week that starts with, God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. You heard Madison in that video say that, that was part of her prayer. So the prayer of the fourth awakening is this, God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. Awaken in me the awareness that I am your unconditionally loved child. We put that on the app. If you'll pray that this week, uh, that would be great. The second thing is we've offered a study guide to help you throughout this week. Uh, That'll be available on the app as well. Uh, But there's also a printed copy at the Info Hub. If you're somebody who likes to write uh, with your hand, with a pen, the old-fashioned way, you can pick that up at the Info Hub. You know, we've said all throughout this series, or at least I've said at Carmel, the cool thing about this is God takes the last step. You know, when he sees us, he sees his son, he sees his child finding their way back to him, he runs for them, right? God takes the last step. We just have to take the next step. But you know, all that's possible because Jesus took the first step. He, he left a perfect heaven 
to come to a sin-soaked earth. In fact, when you think about it, Jesus himself became the prodigal for our sake. He left the house of his father. He gave away everything he had and then returned through the cross back to his father home. And he did this not as a rebellious child, but as a perfectly obedient son sent out to find all the lost children of God, including me and including you. Jesus actually lived the long and painful journey that he describes for people in this story. And we celebrate one of the most painful parts of that journey today through the taking of communion. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that you took the first step by sending Jesus. And we celebrate that today through communion. God, help us to remember the sacrifice you made for us. Lord, I'm so thankful for your love, that it's unconditional, that doesn't depend on what I do or what we do. But God, that you uh, wait for us, you long for us to come home. And time and time again, you've showed us that. And most of all, you showed us by sending your son. Thank you so much for that sacrifice you made, God. We celebrate that with you today. In Jesus' name, amen.